Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Koutou tato au hurihuri tenei. He hotaka e pana ki te putaiau, te taiau me te kaupapa o te ora. This is our Changing World on RNZ National. And now... Ocean acidification, but not as we know it. Ocean acidification is often described as the evil twin of climate change. The oceans have so far taken up more than a third of the carbon dioxide that we've been pumping into the air. And as a result, their chemistry has been changing and they are becoming more acidic. These changes are already being seen in the open ocean, but along the coast, things are even worse. As Veronica finds out when she meets Niwa marine ecologist Vonda Cummings and marine biogeochemist Cliff Law, who leads a project called Coastal Acidification Rates, Impacts and Management, or CAREEM for short. Well, the coast is different because it has different factors that are affecting um, the pH of the water. In the open ocean, we're just worried about the, the CO2 that's coming in, the CO2 that we've released from the burning of fossil fuels, whereas in the coastal ocean, there's other factors that are affecting the pH, and they include things like the organic matter that's running down streams into the water and also the nutrients, and these nutrients are causing phytoplankton to grow, and when bacteria break these down, they produce more carbon dioxide. So a combination of all these different factors is meaning that in coastal areas, the pH varies quite a bit, and in fact, in some areas, such as the Firth of Thames up in the, the north of New Zealand, we're already seeing pH values that are projected for the open ocean by the end of this century. So it's ahead of the rest of the ocean? Certainly, it's ambitiously, it's here and now in some coastal regions around New Zealand. Also in the coastal zone, we have things like power and mussels and snapper, which are, you know, most New Zealanders are pretty keen on. We're really interested in how these organisms, so particularly shellfish, which make their shells out of calcium carbonate and under low pH conditions, which are also associated with low carbonate concentrations, might actually have difficulties forming their shells or maintaining their shells in the future. And I guess there's also the life cycle to consider for both shellfish and fish. Does a lot of that happen around coastal regions as well? Yeah, particularly, for example, like snapper use estuaries as nursery areas, so it's pretty important habitat for them. And acidification would influence the juveniles? That's the question. So um, there have been effects on fish in other parts of the world, and one of the things that part of CARAM will be doing will be investigating effects on early life history of snapper. Now, where we are at the moment, you've got to set up to look at power under different acidification levels. And you're also working on a larger scale. So we've got both lab size experiments and mesoscale experiments. Can you show me around, talk me through? Sure. Certainly can. Wow. This is high tech. 
I was imagining some, you know, little aquariums, but this is pretty high-tech in here. Yeah, so um, this is a pretty awesome room. So we have the ability in here to control pH in different aquaria and temperature and basically whatever else we would like to control. And then we can deliver the water to little aquaria that might hold the organisms that we're interested in studying. So just a quick count, you've got about 20 or even more different containers here that could have any pH that you set, any temperature that you set. Yeah, so there's 24 different what we call header tanks where we manipulate the pH or the temperature or whatever and then we deliver that to our smaller aquaria. It's a great system because it's a flow-through system so the animals are getting water that's coming in from the bay outside the building and into these tanks gets manipulated and then runs through the individual aquaria and out again. So in those smaller tanks you've got power in it? Yeah, moment? so at the moment we have uh, we're just starting an experiment looking at the effects on um, of adult preconditioning. So we've got adult power in each tank which we're going to expose to different levels of pH and then in a few months time we will look at the effects of how successful their offspring are in terms of developing and growing. Can you show me one of them? Can sure. we open it? So this is one of the tanks and you can see there are adult power in here and some macroalgae that we're feeding them on. So there's a mixture of males and females and we've got several tanks. There's three tanks that will be exposed to the same pH and three different treatments. The other thing that we can do in here also is that we can control the variability in the pH that these organisms see. So that's going to be a really interesting thing as well because there is some thought that if organisms are used to more extremes in pH then perhaps they might be better able to cope in so the more future. resilient. A little bit more resilient, yeah. yeah. So that's one of the other things that we're going to be looking at in this study. So with these adults in there, um, you're not going to sample them in a sense, you're just going to check how well they grow, but the idea with them is that they be conditioned for whatever pH you grow them in and then it's the resilience or even just the sheer number of offspring that survives or copes with that particular condition. Yeah, that's right. So we'll look at the, their fertilisation success and then their success of their larvae at different stages right up to settlement probably. Because it's the larvae and their shell building capacity that you'd expect will be affected? Yeah, so studies have shown that for mollusks, so um, bivalves and gastropods, it's the shell forming stage that is particularly critical because basically if these shellfish can't form a shell or if their shell is formed but it's um, malformed or damaged, then that really affects their ability to survive. So, for example, in oysters, that's at about 48 hours, they form a shell. It varies depending on the species, when in their life stage that happens. But, yeah, it really seems to be from work that they've done in the US and elsewhere that it's that shell-forming stage. So it's really a critical yeah. moment that spells survival or not survival yeah. at that point. Yeah. Now, can you keep these adults going for more than one generation? Because it would be interesting to see what happens... These animals have been in here for um, a few weeks already and we will spawn them in this coming October, so that will be after three months, four months, and then we will keep these adults for another year and then spawn them again. So just that will give us an idea of 
whether the time that these adults are exposed to these conditions makes a difference as well. Now, Cliff, can you take me to the mesoscale? Because this, you can do this with power and with shellfish, I imagine, at that scale. But for other coastal species, you'd need to go bigger? Yeah, and for other coastal species, in terms of like looking at the plankton, we need to go larger to look at the overall ecosystem effects. So why don't you come and have a look at the tanks? Great. So what we have here is the, we're looking at the pond out in the backyard of, uh, in Newell Wellington, sitting on Evans Bay, and so this is a, a large pond that holds uh, nine mesocosms for our experiment. So basically a mesocosm is, in this case, is a large bag. They're about four metres long, holding about 4,000 litres of seawater, and we have nine of them there. And so what we do is we manipulate the carbon dioxide and the temperature of these bags to try and simulate future conditions, and then we compare them with some bags that are held just under ambient control conditions. So each of these... you're looking at plankton in this case. Yeah, so okay. Not so larger the, species, but really primary. Yes, but, but really the important thing is that um, in kind of complementing some of the work that Vonda's doing in looking at the direct effects of the shellfish, we're looking at things like indirect effects on um, shellfish and, and snapper larvae in terms of their food that they have. And so this is where the plankton come in. You know, the plankton are really, particularly the phytoplankton, the microalgae, they're like the grass of the ocean. They're basically providing all the energy and carbon into the system that supports the rest of the food chain. So that's why we're interested in how ocean acidification might affect not only their, their growth and their biomass in the future, but also the, the community composition. So, for example, if waters become more acidic, are we going to get other types of phytoplankton, perhaps even harmful algal blooms responding? Do you have any ideas at this point, you know, without necessarily having the results from this mesocosm experiment, but what would you expect from what we know so far? Well, it's interesting because the underlying thing is that phytoplankton are just like plants in your garden that they photosynthesize, and so you might imagine that an increase in carbon dioxide actually might benefit them, but... It's like a fertilizer. Yeah, basically, yeah, that's all right. And so, um, you know, that's one theory, but in what we've seen in the open ocean, that doesn't necessarily bear out. You've certainly seen changes in, in different species and different important phytoplankton groups when they experience um, high carbon dioxide levels. So... I would say that from the majority of the work that's gone on overseas, what they've tended to see is they've seen a, a decrease in the size of these phytoplankton groups in coastal waters when they've done these experiments. But we shall find out from our own experiments. And I guess then working backwards to see what the impact is on the species that live off the phytoplankton. That's right. So the neat thing about these mesocosms is that we've not just got phytoplankton here. The water is directly from the coast, and so it's, it's a, an entire plankton community. So it has the, obviously all the bacteria and also the zooplankton. They're the, the animal component of the plankton that grazes on the phytoplankton and then passes that energy up the food chain. And so we can get a real more of a holistic idea about how the planktonic ecosystem is going to respond to ocean acidification. Now, this is a question for a chemist. Within the phytoplankton, there'd be different species that use either silicate or carbonate in their own shells, and that would... I'd imagine be influenced by more or less CO2 as well. Sure, you're absolutely right. Is that what distinguishes between you know which species might do better or less? Yeah, so? that's certainly the case in the open ocean. In that uh, some of the plankton have uh, carbonate shells, and um, these are the ones where there's been a lot of concern about. In a high CO2 ocean, it means that there's actually less uh, carbonate ion available for them to actually maintain these carbonate shells, and so there's been quite a lot of concern about whether they'll be able to survive. Now, in the coastal waters we're looking at, these 
plankton with carbonate shells. They're not so dominant in these waters, and we're more interested in like what will be the response of the, the organisms that have silicate shells. So overall, you know, between all those different life scale to meso scale, and then there's some sites around the country where there's monitoring in the in the real world on top of that. What do you hope to get out of this project? Well, the aim of CARIM is kind of in its name. It's coastal acidification, rates, impacts and management. And so we have uh, a number of different institutes around New Zealand working to really address, first of all, how pH is changing in coastal waters, particularly at these three important sites that we've identified around New Zealand. And then looking at the impacts of this, not only the indirect effects on uh, things like plankton and food quality, but also the direct effects on these three important species that we're looking at. And these are important not only ecologically, uh, but also from the perspective of socioeconomic value. And so we're talking about power and green shell mussel and snapper. And so combining by all the results uh, that we're putting together here, we hope to get some idea of not only forecasting how pH will change in coastal waters, but what it will mean for these important species, and also providing some tools, not only for regional councils, but also the aquaculture industry, and possibly about how they can address coastal acidification. Our hope is that we'll get a better understanding of what the natural variability is in pH around the coastal regions because it's more complex in the coast because there's, there's natural um, daily variation in pH cycles because of the biological activities that are going on. So it's getting an idea of what the natural variability is that these organisms see in the coastal system and then using that information in our experiments um, to design our experiments in a realistic way to see how that variation that these organisms actually see might affect their resilience to ocean acidification. Are you hopeful that you might get down to the almost molecular level of understanding of how those that may be more resilient actually do it? There's a component of this work that's looking at genetic level of whether, whether some families which have been bred under aquaculture conditions, for example, for green shell mussels, and this is work that Cawthron are doing, whether or not some of those families might have the genetic capacity that makes them more resilient CARIM's a four-year project funded by MB, and at the end of it we hope that we will have much more insight into not only understanding how the pH varies around the coast of New Zealand, but also using that information to project just how these important ecosystems and important species that we rely on for food and also for, for recreation as well, that how, just how they're going to thrive in the, in the future coastal ocean. And so we'll be pulling together the data from all these experiments, from the models, from the observations, and hopefully coming up with some tools that's going to help us adapt to the future. And that was Cliff Law. And before that, you heard Wanda Cummings, who are both at Niwa. Check out our webpage for the story and images too, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World.